As a journalist who has covered the finance sector over the last five years, I've had the opportunity to interview and engage with some of the best minds in the space. Leaving big bank earnings reports to the boring traditional media firms, I'll focus on the tech-savvy apps, digital investing platforms, challenger banks, and payment giants to drive relevant content that looks forward to disruption instead of fearing it. I'm Nicole Kasperson, fintech journalist, and this is What the Fintech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of What the Fintech, a podcast for fintech professionals who want to shape the future of our industry with innovation and inclusion. I'm your host, Nicole Kasperson, and today I'm sitting down with Anthony Zhang, founder and CEO of VinoVest, a fintech for fine wine investing. With VinoVest, retail investors can build, track, and analyze their own fully insured wine portfolios, an asset class that's traditionally only been available to less than 1% of all investors, and one that's appreciated nearly 130% over the last decade. As for Anthony, he's founded three companies by the age of 25, sold one to a Walmart, Walmart subsidiary, and has been funded by Mark Cuban and Peter Thiel. His story is truly an inspiration. Anthony, I'm so happy to have you here with us. Welcome to What the Fintech. Hey, Nicole. I'm super glad to be on. So thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So first of all, how are you doing today? Where are you located? You have an actual like wine cellar and boxes behind you, which is just awesome. I, I love that imagery. Yeah, I am in uh, my mother-in-law's home office slash wine cellar. So uh, in Orange County, and it is a beautiful day. So I can't wow. complain. Oh, okay. I'm originally from Mission Viejo, so I'm a little okay, jealous. Okay, super close. Yeah. It is <laughs> It is mad beautiful there. Um, so yeah, amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, that with us. I do love to open up the conversation by learning more about you and your background and how that really influences your leadership. So both of your parents are Chinese immigrants that traveled for work. So you did spend most of your childhood in Hong Kong and Beijing. How have those experiences really shaped your values today? Yeah, so I was born here in the States, but as you mentioned, I, I lived most of my childhood life abroad and in, in cities like Hong Kong and Beijing and uh, Vancouver even as well. Um, I think just being the new kid a lot um, was was definitely an eye-opening experience, but it also helped me appreciate new environments, new cultures, and new people. Uh, I moved around, I think I moved like over 10 or 12 houses before I was 18 and a bunch of different schools as well. So I really had to adapt, but it also helped me appreciate all of these different experiences, um, you know, being in, being in a, a big city, being a part of a lot of different cultures. And I went to international schools growing up. So a lot of other uh, kids in, in similar situations as me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really do notice that common thread between a lot of my guests is that they've lived in a lot of different places and experienced a lot of cultures. And that just helps you just understand other people differently, right? And helps you have a better grasp that everyone's different and that's, you know, okay. And that actually is what makes like you as a fintech leader and a company even better. Um, so yeah, I also thought, I thought I was pissed that I moved like one time in my childhood from <laughs> California to Texas, um, which when you're like a Cali kid is like not what you want your, and they, I was like 13 is like not what you want your parents you're to like, tell this you. This is the end of my life. No, I, know, I like sobbing. Like, yeah, I was like miserable, but ended up fine. Um, but to move, what you, you said like, 18 or like 12 times or something crazy. Yeah, double digit I think I moved 12 times uh, yeah, before I was 18. Crazy. So a bunch of different homes, you know, some were really far moves, right? Like from Hong Kong to Beijing or from Beijing to 
to Vancouver. Some were just uh, moves, maybe uh, maybe a Do couple miles a down the street to another home. Um, I mean, Beijing still has my heart. It's it's where I've spent most of my life, and um, just culturally have just appreciated how much that city has changed um, in in a very very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I haven't been yet, but it's on the list. Um, you also went to USC and had a ton of interesting experiences like pitching billionaires by 18 years old. So when you go to school for entrepreneurship, is there just like already an expectation that you do more networking, uh, networking, if you will, i.e. like skipping <laughs> class outside of the classroom? Oh, yeah. I think uh, the main reason <laughs> why I, I chose to go to a school like USC was that they had that entrepreneurship uh, major. Um, most schools are, you know, you could do maybe economics or business administration, something a little more general, and then they have the MBA program. USC was super focused. So everybody there was really encouraging of new ideas, right? You're not just like expected to do your homework and get good grades. You're really out there to be able to build the right connections and knowledge and, and network to be able to build your first business. Yeah. And you skipped class to go pitch Mark Cuban, uh, raised (laughs) 100K and got everyone in your class uh, an A. Uh, Who do you think was more jealous when you accomplished that, your fellow students or your professor? Um, I'll I'll give a shout out to my professor because uh, I remember he told me before I was about to skip the class, he was going to dock me a letter grade if I (laughs) if I missed his class. Um, And I, I took that risk and Fortunately, it, it paid off. But, you know, even if I didn't get the funding, it would have been worth it. Just the experience to pitch a billionaire, to pitch a shark. That is something that I'll, I'll never take for granted. Mm-hmm. What was the pitch? Um, it was it was really my, my first business. It was a college food delivery app called Envoy Now. So much like your Uber Eats and Postmates. But the thing that made us special was that we really leaned into the whole college environment. So you didn't have the school email, you couldn't deliver. You couldn't even log into the app. Everything was location gated. It was linked to your student ID so that students would be able to trust whoever they were delivering to and whoever they were getting the delivery with. Um, so that's, I think, what really created the virality on each college campus that led to our growth. Wow. And so what you're telling me is that by like at 18 or so, you already had Um, Kind of the understanding that um, exclusivity with um, companies and really catering to like that specific niche and building that community, if you will, um, are like crazy key factors. And then, you know, fast forward to today and you've also implemented that with Finovest. So that's like such a cool hunch to have. That's so young. Yeah, uh, I'll uh, I'll say that I definitely didn't know that was that was my hunch. (laughs) Then Um, It was really just more so out of necessity because. USC, it's, it's a little bit of like an oasis in LA, right? It's right mm-hmm. smack dab in the middle of downtown. Um, there are there are spots that are not very safe at night. So we had right. to actually location gate it. And especially when you're getting deliveries late at night, you want to be able to let the right people into campus. So uh, it was more and more of necessity, but we realized it was a business model that created trust and friendliness and community. And we, we just rolled with it. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's super smart. And, uh, to do the same, you know, today and kind of see the trends like align with that, even though you maybe didn't realize you had like a really good crystal ball. Um, but it it ends up that you did, um, must be kind of like an awesome feeling and, and knowing that you have that, you know, and as you, um, as you get older, right, you're just going to like probably keep, uh, building on that instinct. Um, so kudos for just like having that within you. Cause you know, not a lot of people have that. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I think uh, even though the businesses that I built are, are so different than what I'm doing today, I think the best thing is you learn as you go, right? And as you mentioned, you can find those parallels, even if they're not so obvious at face value, that can help you as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. Um, and, you know, kind of speaking of your career and all the success you had, you did have a spinal cord injury that did change your life. You fought for your life and turned around and showed that true perseverance. I'm definitely a believer and uh, try to show that with my content, that our differences are our superpower. From your perspective and personal experiences, would you agree and why? Yeah. Um, you know, my, my injury five years ago changed my life. It's a it's a permanent injury. I'm still in a wheelchair today. And there's uh, a lot of things that um, I'll never be able to do again. But there's also a lot of perspective that I gained along the way and that, hey, like, I'm lucky to still be alive. I'm lucky to be able to breathe on my own, lucky to not be in to need to be in a hospital setting. And I'm lucky to still have everything you know up here in my brain so I can be able to do things that I love to do. Um, so I totally agree that people who are are different, whether it be at face value or something a little bit less obvious, bring something to the table that is special. And um, whether it be from a, a diversity standpoint or an inclusion standpoint or just a company building standpoint from both a customer base as well as an employee base, I, I totally subscribe to that, that it makes and, and builds the best outcomes over time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and kind of looking at the other side of, um, you know, I guess what makes you diverse. And um, you recently wrote an article for entrepreneur.com addressing that Asian millennials as a group are redefining investors' relationship with luxury assets. I found it super interesting. Why was it important to write this article and address the Asian millennial influence over uh, investing? Yeah, um, for, for those of you who maybe can't can't see me i am an asian millennial so that's that's <laughs> number one so uh we've, we've got that and i think um just because of my experiences abroad still a lot of my really close friends um are maybe they they went to school here in the states and now they're back in asia and i think um you know they're really seeing some some key trends that i think will will start to um kind of infiltrate the global economy right everyone talks about the baby boomers and how they're, you know, have so much power over the economy. I think uh, the the next big one is is millennials in Asia and ones that are uh, are wealthy, right? Because not only is that the highest, the fastest growing wealth segment in the world, but it's one that I think has kind of been overlooked because everyone's just talking about uh, Gen Z and fintech, whereas you know the ones that are actually having the spending power today and for the next decade or so, two decades, three decades are going to be millennials and uh, most of them are going to be coming out of Asia, especially the newly wealthy ones. Yeah. It does seem interesting that like the, I mean, millennials had a lot of attention uh, for a while. Most of it bad, right? Most of it pretty bad attention. (laughs) I know. It's why I've been identifying lately as a zillennial because I'm like right on the cusp of (laughs) kind of, I'm like, I like that. Zillennial. Years away from the cusp, but I just, I like appreciative of Gen Z and everything that they've like, you know, done to um, really like bring awareness and like they, you know, don't take the BS. But anyway, giving some credit back to us millennials, technically that's what I am. Um, yeah, yeah, they bad, bad press um, got a little overlooked with, um, I think within the last like year, um, the last 18 months really because of the pandemic and especially mm-hmm. in fintech, right? I feel like the Gen Zers got, um, the, the spotlight now because of, you know, GameStop and all of the things that have happened totally. um, and TikTok and all that 
all the craziness. But um, yeah, I mean, but but especially the elder millennials, like elder millennials, i.e., oh, people in like their thirties or late thirties, are yeah, our elders. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> there are elders. My partner's gonna kill me because he's an elder millennial. But anyway, um, you know, it, it um, those are the folks with you know, the true wealth. So, and, and actually there's a lot of, I think there's like a misconception that they aren't as interested in like apps or building their wealth or like, or that they're only interested in apps and they don't want to like leverage real, um, you know, wealth management or like financial advice from a human. Mm -hmm. But those are like some of the misconceptions I hear. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's, that's actually our biggest segment at Vinovest is these older millennials, kind of younger Gen Xers that, you know, they've got, They've got, you know, half a decade, a decade of working experience under their belt, right? They've got the money now and they want to be able to start building their future and their wealth. And um, a lot of them are choosing to diversify in a way that is, is, you know, allocating a far larger percentage of their wealth into alternatives than, say, older Gen Xers or baby boomers, which, you know, they mostly have traditional portfolios, your 60, 40. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the 60, 40 is RIP. Um, yep. No one, no one wants that anymore. Well, I mean, someone does, I'm sure. But anyway, millennials, we don't apparently, um, because they're boring. I have heard of plenty of stories, um, even from other entrepreneurs in the fintech space, who say like they, you know, especially actually, mostly I hear this from uh, immigrant founders who you know come to America and maybe they have their money and they try to work with an advisor, um, and they just want to throw everything into a 60-40 portfolio, and it's like mm -hmm. not the best returns, and things aren't great, and it's boring. They're not not only are they not having fun, but they're like they're not diversifying their portfolio, so it just isn't working. Um, which actually kind of um, ties perfectly into my next question um, of jumping a little bit more into Vinovest and what you've built here. Obviously, alternative investing is hot. Uh, the aggregate value of alts is projected to increase over 300% to $17.2 trillion by 2025. Wow. Why do you think alts are having such a moment today? You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but getting a little bit deeper in, into that. Yeah, I, I think it's really that part about people want to take control, right, of their finances. They're, they're tired of waiting around. And they also realize that there are so many more options that are accessible to the everyday investor um, because the reason why most people have a 60 portfolio, 60, 40 is that that's all they can access, right? Everyone has equal and open access to the public markets. That really hasn't been the case for alternatives up until very recently, right? You first have the boom of all these real estate investing platforms before you had to be a multimillionaire and, and have all sorts of licenses and knowledge to invest in real estate. Now apps can, you know, at a click of a button, you don't even see to see the home and you're like, boom, I'm a partial homeowner. Same thing, I think, is continuing with a lot of other alts that were previously very inaccessible. And, and Vinovest, with, with the wine and spirits industry, we're doing just that, right? We're taking away uh, the barriers to entry, like knowing anything about wine or whiskey or getting access to the rarest stuff in the world or even storage, right? Most, most people don't have the time or space or the want to want to dedicate an entire bedroom to, to storing your stuff. Um, so for these hard <laughs> just... assets... We exactly. are, we're allowing anybody with a, with an iPhone or a smartphone to be able to invest in wine and we take care of everything else. And for them, the experience is, is the same thing as if they were investing through, you know, Robinhood or one of their more traditional stock investing apps. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just like fun. Like I totally understand uh, being intrigued by fine wine as an asset class, right? It's fun. It's luxury. It's something that was very exclusive to the mm-hmm. ultra wealthy. Um, so with your entrepreneurial background, you could have really done anything with your next company. Why choose fintech and democratization of uh, an alt investment like wine? Great question. So a- after I sold my first company, I had a very similar experience, right? I met with my first financial advisor and they're like, hey, Anthony, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I'm like, build more companies. And they're like, whoa, that's pretty risky. Why don't we just put all your stuff into really safe, long-term, boring, 60-40, right? And I was like, whoa, I do not want that. All my other friends are starting more companies. I want to invest in them, right? I want to try out real estate and get some exposure in crypto. And um, I realized also that um, that interest in alternatives led me down a rabbit hole one day. I was just researching what what the ultra people, ultra wealthy people are investing in. Cause you know, I would like to become one of those people one day. And uh, you know, no surprise at the top of the list, it's like wine, whiskey, art, jewelry, <laughs> antique cars. I'm like, ooh, all these sound really cool, but the only one that I had previously had a, a passion or a connection to was fine wine. And that's really going back to my my upbringing in Asia where fine wine, especially high-end Bordeaux, high-end Burgundies, they're so ingrained as part of culture, right? You want to go impress a friend. Like you show your respect mm-hmm. by bringing them a gift. And oftentimes it's something you want to be able to enjoy together, like a nice bottle of wine or whiskey. And, you know, that that scarcity, that value really stuck into my head. So when I was looking at this list of you know potential assets to research and get into, wine just called by name. And I was like, hey, if, if I'm a bad wine investor, at least I got a bunch of nice stuff to drink, right? It's kind of a, <laughs> your, your losses are, are mitigated by that. Um, a little bit more than if you went all in on a crypto and it dropped 97%. I love that perspective. Um, always seeing the positive and the up. Um, so yeah. you mentioned before that VinoVest does source, authenticate, stores, and insures each bottle of wine, which is very cool. I feel like uh, not a lot of people actually know of this process, right? So will you talk us through that and what this looks like exactly like for the end consumer? Yeah, I think uh, first of all, just letting letting our listeners know like how important it is, right? Because from an asset class standpoint, wine is not very risky. It has less than a third the volatility of the public equities market, so it's really hard for you to lose fifty percent of the value of your wine. The way that you can turn a ball of wine into zero percent is not storing it properly, right? That's the real risk, and that's why people spend a ton of money on wine cellars. Um, most, most retail investors don't have the time or effort to want to spend tens of thousands of dollars setting up their home cellar. So when we source wine, uh, we try to source direct from the winery, um, and we have storage facilities set up next to all these major wine growing regions. So the amount of time between the winery and it traveling is as mitigated as much as possible. And then when we receive it, we put it into 24 seven, you know, temperature, humidity, light controlled facilities. So that wine can just sit there, age, improve. And that's really, I think, taking away one of the biggest risks in this asset class, which is the actual custody and asset protection while it's while it's being held by an individual investor. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. I, I have to ask, um, is your mother-in-law a wine connoisseur before <laughs> she knew you? Or is this just like serendipitous <laughs> that um, she she is, has her own little like kind of wine? I guess, would you classify that as a wine cellar? There's a wine cellar in his background. In case yeah. Yeah. So we've got a almost a thousand 
thousand bottles here. I'll kind of move the camera a little oh bit. Oh my god! So there, it, it keeps stretching. Um, and uh, that's well, I think yeah. one of the many reasons why my mother-in-law and I got along very well to start out with because she's a huge, huge wine lover. And, um, okay. We, yeah, a lot of our conversations are centered around wine, which is awesome. That is awesome. I actually look forward to asking you some more questions about wine in general. I should have, if it wasn't like only 1 p.m. as we're recording this Eastern time, I would probably have a glass of wine already. But anyways, when building <laughs> out your platform, what were some of the highs and lows? Because I do imagine that given the exclusivity of luxury wine, there could have been some hurdles to overcome to disrupt that space and you know bring it uh, to the everyday consumer and investor. Yeah, I think the, the number one thing is that the, the wine industry is extremely traditional they respect tradition they respect the way that things have been done which is why you know the way people have made wine 2000 years ago are pretty much the same way that people make it today um and given that i knew that if we didn't approach the industry and and get buy-in from the beginning um in a thoughtful way that we would be rejected by them and i thought Mm -hmm. you know we don't want to just be a disruptor right we want to actually improve the industry and improve the lives of the people who are making the wine because at the end of the day, the platform that we're creating and facilitating should be able to increase transparency, take away the middlemen and increase accessibility, which I think improves the lives of the consumers and the producers who are, I think, the main the main people who add value to this industry, not all of the people in the middle. Um, so I think that was really a, a key challenge was figuring out our messaging to these winemakers. Like, we're like, hey, like we're not just we're not just another retailer, not just another distributor looking to buy your wine. Like we're actually connecting you with the next generation of your customers, right? The average age of a fine wine drinker is probably like 50 plus, almost 60 years old. And they're probably buying less and less wine each year. Whereas the millennials, even though today, you know, very few of us will actually drop a thousand dollars on drinking a bottle of wine at dinner, will totally invest a thousand dollars a bottle into the same thing on VinoVest. And I think that, uh, that perspective shift, um, really helped to click and, uh, help us align forces with a lot of these wineries that are realizing, hey, like we got to get our brand in front of the next generation some way or the other. And if we can use this wedge, this sort of investing angle, we're still helping to bring the educational component, bring the story, bring mm-hmm. everything else that makes a wine magical into the um, investor's kind of sphere of knowledge. And the hope is that, you know, over over the years as we get older and we start to be able to afford to spend on luxury items like wine you know what are we going to reach for first right is it going to be that a random bottle or a bottle that we'd invested in already developed a relationship with and helped us make money to get to where we are today right so that's that's really kind of one of the challenges and breakthroughs that we achieved uh in in the early days of um conceiving vino vest yeah i mean that storytelling is so important right and i don't think it gets enough credit um all the time from kind of your your uh, point of view, um, and demystifying, uh, you know, notions, right? Like to think mm-hmm. that wine investing, like I could definitely see that, right? Like, oh, wine investing, especially maybe like, you know, if you backtrack 18 months ago, that wine investing is really only for, you know, older people or for, you know, someone mm-hmm. like the average wine, wine drinker or, or investor at, you know, 50 or 60 years old. Um, but, you know, I, th- I do love thinking about that long-term view of, you know, a millennial and, you know, even a Gen Zer, right? Getting in front of um, that customer because they're going to be older one day eventually and mm-hmm. helping like demystify um, the fact that like you can invest in wine. It is affordable. It's possible. Like you don't have to 
you know, be your parents' age to do it or what exactly. have you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's super helpful. And I love like the niche of it and and the story. When it comes to some of the like partnerships or integrations that maybe you would look to have to help scale, what would be maybe of interest to you? So for us, um, on the industry side, it's developing these relationships, right? We want to be able to benefit the end winemaker because um, at the end of the day, um, you know, the wine market is a lot like the art market where um, I think the boom of NFTs has led to a lot of artists benefiting, right? Because then they get that sort of residual income from subsequent sales, right? It's say artists today, they commission their piece for 10K, someone else sells it for a million who then sells it for 10 million. Artists is still poor. They just made 10K. They've got nothing um, and, and really no incentive to drive secondary market sales. And unfortunately, it's the same in the wine industry today, right? The, the winemaker just sells it off to one distributor and that's about it. Even if the wine value 10X is, they don't get any money. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that we um, strive to do is when we partner with these wineries, um, we give them a piece of all the residual sales. And that's a new program that we're really excited to be uh, debuting in, in the future. Nice, nice. I mean, and that's um, yeah, one thing I always kind of preach in my content is that I believe that uh, fintech um, not only can change the world, but can, um, I mean, when used um, in, in ethical and accessible manners, um, but can also, um, you know, it, maturing technology gives us the ability for everyone to have a slice of the pie, for everyone mm -hmm. to win, for everyone to, from, you know, you to the operators at your firm to the end consumer and now, you know, to the, to the winery that is, uh, you know, helping out your platform and, and vice versa. So, um, you know, love to see that. And um, yeah, looking forward to when that kind of rolls out. That's a super uh, interesting like partnership. And I think something that maybe even other uh, very like niche um, investing platforms, maybe they, you know, there's one that just focuses on art or whatever. Yeah, you know, that they could kind of learn from that because Absolutely. we, we got to do more of that. <laughs> we got to use all this mature technology and software that we have to actually be able to like help, you know, keep everything uh, interconnected because it, it is. And, um, you know, that fintech is meant to have everyone uh, be a part of like a greater good. So yeah, uh, I agree. Super awesome. Super awesome. Um, so Vinovest is also, um, you know, the first robo advisor for fine wine. Uh, the industry trend is shifting a little more towards uh, an interest in like hybrid financial advice. Um, so you know, one with ha has like a mobile app, but maybe a human if uh, a user chooses. Do you have any interest in expanding the business further into actual human advice or tapping into like a hybrid platform? Yeah, so um, we haven't publicly announced it yet, but on our um, premium and above offerings, we do have um, actually dedicated portfolio managers that on top of utilizing the RoboAdvisor technology are actually able to provide that dedicated resource in you know conducting portfolio reviews and keeping you updated in the market and especially for you know newcomers to the wine investing side actually telling you like what the f these bottles in your portfolio are right they're they're all french and italian names that most people can't even pronounce and i think helping <laughs> to make that parallel I'm like hey this is you know this wine in your portfolio this is equivalent to like an apple stock this is like the blue chip creme de la creme uh really stable <laughs> wine that uh is like the backbone of your portfolio and this other one up and coming from tuscany like this is like the tesla right this is like super super hot winemaker like really really been going up 
in price in recent years. And I think it really does take that in person or, you know, over, over the phone or zoom sort of educational component to, to help some people learn, right. Cause different people like to receive and, and consume information in different ways. And, uh, for a lot of us, it, it, definitely carries more weight when you're talking to a real person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially going back to like the millennial conversation, um, I also have to give you kudos for uh, saying what the F uh, and playing a little bit on my podcast name. Um, But anyways, going back to like the millennial uh, aspect, right? And, um, you know, getting these um, products in front of them. Um, I think that, you know, the wealthier millennial, I'll call them that instead of the elder one, they, um, <laughs> they want to graduate, right? Like robo-advisory can kind of be like a graduation program almost like, or you get into that. And then when you mm-hmm. feel like you are ready or you have a certain amount of wealth, eventually you're going to want to talk to a human. Like eventually you're going to want someone to really help and like a true tried and true professional. Um, yeah. I, 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 don't know if like robots are ever going to replace that. I don't think robots are ever going to replace like that human connection. Um, so yeah, no, that's awesome that you guys are going to you know build that out. And I think that's like the next wave of like um, auto investing because I do think investors like want to be more engaged with their investing and to do so you have to like also connect to a human. Um, totally. yeah, I, don't, I, I imagine that's what you're saying and maybe even hearing from your customers. It totally is. And I think, uh, you're you're totally right in that like the robots they can't completely replace a lot of wealth management and investing right because a lot of it is managing your emotions if if you see mm-hmm. things go down or go up you're gonna feel one type of way or the other and uh, robots not gonna be like hey like let's stick to the 10-year plan that you came up with or you know if uh you know if you need to buy a house for some reason or have an emergency you want to pull out like robots not gonna tell you not to they don't know your life situation right and uh, I think we're still a far ways off from having like a, a fully, fully AI version of that telling you what to do. It'd be kind of kind of scary if that were the truth. <laughs> right. So I should feel like somewhat um, relieved that my Siri or that my Alexa doesn't sometimes doesn't understand me the first time because I don't yeah, know if I want even though if we're mad at her, um, <laughs> we can't let her get too smart. Exactly. Oh, that's good. Um, what is your favorite fine wine investment? Is that something uh, I imagine maybe you get asked that a lot? Yeah, I would say um, one of our favorite recent investments was um, the Dominus 2018. So Dominus is uh, a winery in Napa Valley, um, but it's from a French winemaker. So they they make in a very classic Bordeaux style. And um, our, our wine trading team actually secured a pretty large allocation I want to say about two months ago and uh, less than a month ago, it was named the number one wine in the world. And that led to a lot of press it getting sold out everywhere else. And uh, prices, prices definitely increased pretty quickly. So we we're able to see some pretty exciting price action on that wine. And especially in an industry where the price appreciation is, is pretty slow and steady, it's highly just correlated with the age of the bottle and how long you hold it. Uh, it was, it was kind of fun to kind of see some, you know, crypto-esque returns in a few days um, in a, in a, in a otherwise sort of, uh, sort of safe and boring return profile type of asset class. <laughs> it is, uh, well, I guess, um, I was going to say it's not boring. Um, yeah, I mean, it is also interesting to think like, would, does it work at all for like other liquors to be, or like, or I guess just liquor, because wine's not a liquor, um, to ever be like a part of 
your uh, platform? Like, is that ever something you think about like building upon? Like, okay, we got fine wine. Maybe we'll do like expensive liquors or like champagnes or something like that. Yeah, we we're all all in on champagnes and other sparkling wines, and we're actually in the process of structuring together a whiskey fund. So, oh, like like nice. fine wines, uh, you know, rare Scotch, Japanese whiskey, American bourbon and whiskey. Um, they have a lot of the very very similar uh, return profiles as wine, right? They're it's a supply and demand play. They're scarce, and they also are very highly correlated with the age of the cask. So mm-hmm. um, that's something that we'll be branching into, allowing folks to not only invest in bottles of whiskey, but also in in the actual cask as it's maturing. Oh, that's awesome! I do love a good Japanese whiskey, and that is something that. Um, oh man, I want to. I want to jump on this train. This is so fun. Um, you Speaking a little bit about crypto, you also write about NFTs, the popularity of collectibles and tokenization. Mm-hmm. So any interest in incorporating blockchain technology into your business? It's something we're definitely interested in. Um, I think it would be really beneficial for uh, quite a few reasons to be able to Im- incorporate some of that technology into the wine industry and spirits industry in general. Um, and I think the main reason is on that sort of digital ownership, right? In an asset class that's very much so collector centric, right? People want to show off the rare wines that they have. People want to be able to verify that, hey, this is one of only 10 bottles, right? And a lot of wineries and other luxury sort of goods companies have, you know, have your sort of like, you know, QR codes that you can scan and verify, right? And but that's only one website, one winery. How can you take it into a more global sphere that I think NFTs can play a big part of that. And Mm -hmm. how can you determine real life scarcity, right? If somebody wants to drink wine off of our platform, we can just actually burn the token and show that, hey, this wine has actually left our custody. Um, It's now off the market. So before there were only 99 bottles, now there's 98. So I think in in ways like that, our team's been thinking of a few curious uh, solutions for, uh, for being able to incorporate that technology into our platform. Yeah, I mean, there's so many use cases, and I think uh, sharing those use cases are one of the best ways to get uh, more folks uh, understanding NFTs and tokenization and why uh, we're all so excited about it. I went to my first uh, NFT gallery. (laughs) Um, I know, and uh, I went to, it was like Crypto Week in New York uh, a few weeks ago, and which is amazing. I love that. That's a thing. And um, yeah, I found myself in an NFT gallery, and I was like, yeah, I, this is cool. I totally understand this, <laughs> like nice. seeing it for the first time. I imagine that, you know, that's probably something like, do you guys ever go and visit the wine cellars or the, the um, I guess you would maybe the future whiskey barrels? that? Uh... Yeah, so we've, we've got team members uh, all across the globe. So, you know, in, in Europe, we store a lot of wine there. You know, we have a, a pretty large user base in Asia as well. So we've got folks, um, you know, with our with our sellers in Hong Kong and Singapore. So it's cool to actually see it. And we also bring our clients to see it when they want to travel. Um, So it's pretty cool to be able to be like, Hey, like all this wine that I was storing in my virtual cellar through VinoVest, I'm actually in the UK and I can see, you know, in this huge warehouse full of millions of bottles of wine, this is my little corner at VinoVest and these are the bottles I actually own. So uh, we've we've done a few client visits like that and expect to do a lot more, especially as the world opens up. Oh, that is awesome. I imagine even, you know, uh, international uh, expansion is probably something you'd love to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to, right, have uh, 
even like just a growing amount of um, uh, investors like across ponds, uh, if you will, uh, be a part of the platform. I mean, is there anything that, um, you know, that you can do to increase that or like to really make a splash in, you know, a place you love like Beijing or, um, you know, or do you kind of just like keep on the growth trajectory and uh, ride the wave? Yeah, we, we definitely want to invest pretty he- heavily in into the Asian market just because it is poised to be the largest consumption market for a fine wine in the world. So right now, China still lags behind the United States, but the growth rate is, is expected to eclipse um, the total sort of market consumption size in probably the next five five to seven years. Um, and we want to yeah. stay ahead of that. So we definitely want to be able to invest heavily into international expansion. And I believe fintech should be global and borderless. And wine is something that um, you know can be consumed anywhere, right? And it's produced anywhere. So I think just even the um, the fundamentals of the asset class and the nature of the business that we're building, um, it it's definitely not an afterthought for us. It's been on our minds since day one to be able to build our platform to be globally accessible um, on day one. But of course, you know, there's still a lot of work for us to be able to do to make you know make the Vino Best experience in China versus in the UK versus mm-hmm. uh, in the United States feel native and feel smooth the same way it does now for our American users. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, I, I have asked you a lot about kind of uh, different plans to um, kind of address the next wave of growth for VinoVest. But, um, you know, kind of overall, right, what what does that look like? Like when you're heading into 2022, um, what gets you most excited? And, you know, is there like a milestone that you, you hope to hit or... Um, yeah, just like a goal you have for the, the coming year. Yeah, I think for us, it's really planting that those flags uh, internationally. I want to be able yeah. to establish just really incredible operating teams abroad and establish user bases. Like I would love for, you know, right now I'd say we're about 80, 85% user base in the United States. I'd love for that to look like, you know, 50% United States, 50% yeah. everywhere else. Um, not to say that, you know, our user base in the United States won't grow, but I'd love to see that distribution be a little bit more diverse by the end of the year or end of next year. And I think that would be a, a huge win for us and a huge milestone to hit. Speaking of international and um, culture, culture is something that is super important here at What the FinTech um, and something I always like to ask our guests about. So talk to me about how you balance your company culture and values while really scaling a fast growing FinTech like VinoVest. Yeah, I think... Uh, in terms of us and our company culture, it really is rooted in remote first and amongst that being able to be extremely inclusive. Like we, from day one, when it was just Brent and I, two co-founders in, in LA who lived, you know, we lived like three miles away from each other. We decided to be a remote company, uh, mm-hmm. mostly because we hated LA traffic, but <laughs> it ended up being a good call when the pandemic hit us a few months later. And I think since then we've just leaned in even more into building that sort of remote lifestyle, building the sort of um, you know benefits that are globally inclusive for no matter if it's our newly hired employee in Switzerland or someone here in, in LA. Uh, we want the employee experience to be um, consistent in ways, but also be able to highlight um, ways that we can still connect with each other. So a lot mm-hmm. of the, the internal tools and processes and you know because we have such a 
also a diverse um, employee base in terms of experiences. You know, no one knows everything about fintech and wine and you know everything at the same time, right? There's wine industry people, there's finance industry people, there's tech and startup people. So uh, we really do promote a culture of, of cross learning and sharing because no one's an expert on on everything in the company, but we do need to be an expert on all three at VinoVest to be able to succeed. Um, so the sort of cross-pollination of learning, whether it be work-related topics or just passion-related topics, uh, we encourage a lot of that sharing and transparency within our organization at VinoVest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is something about um, being you know remote at the core that already makes a company um, you know in- inherently um, inclusive, right? You're capable of being flexible to, you know, uh, different employees needs and, um, you know, kind of what their own work culture, right. While also still kind of fueling, um, like a camaraderie. So it's, um, really telling, right. Of like a fintech's ability to be able to manage that. Um, so that's very, very cool. I also love, um, you know, thinking about just building out teams that are diverse because, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you need someone to check your blind spots. Like no one's totally. perfect. Um, no one knows everything, like you said. And if everyone, you know, if you start a company with a, just a bunch of former, I don't know, bankers or whatever, then, you know, no one has um, different experiences or like um, someone like you've got to avoid that group think. Um, and I think that's something that fintech can be better about, um, which is what makes kind of the startup scene so exciting, because I think more startups are emerging that are um, truly addressing that and being intentional. You have to be very intentional about your um, diversity and the team that you build at the foundation. Cause at the end of the totally. day, there's more than enough data out there to show that that creates long-term success and true product innovation. Yep. Absolutely. Better outcomes, better ways to make decisions as a business. And you have to do it from the beginning, right? You can't just be like, Oh, I'll wait till we're at 50 people. Cause we're too small to care about diversity. Like it has to be, Eesh. Day one, be intentional because that's the only way you can do it and, and create it as a fabric of the company rather than an afterthought. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It is not just a trending topic. It is a part of the fabric of a smart and successful fintech. So kudos to you and all of the success that VinoVest has. One of my last questions I will ask you is that you are um, you know, obviously super busy. You have done a lot, um, and you know, uh, and I honestly, you might even be younger than I am. But um, you know, what content are you consuming? Is there any you know books or movies or music or anything that um, you know, kind of helps you keep balanced or wine while you watch a movie that keeps you balanced? Yeah. It's it's a lot of wine, but I call it market <laughs> research these days. Um, but in in terms of like uh, books and content. Um, one that I'm reading right now that I'm enjoying a lot, it's called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Um, so my, my coach recommended that to me, and um, I've really been enjoying reading that. I think, you know, I, I am I am pretty young. I'm in my mid-20s, and I have a lot to learn, especially with, with how fast the company is growing. I owe it not only to myself, but to our shareholders and to our employees for me to up-level myself you know, every single month. Because if I was... If I was the same Anthony as I was six months ago, I would be working myself out of a job at VinoVest. That's how quickly things are growing. So um, it's a lot of self-improvement and then a 
a lot of uh, a lot of stalking smarter people than I am on Twitter. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so smart! I I do the same thing. Um, thankful for Twitter for that and uh, the Twitter yes. sphere. Shout out to Fitwit. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I I re- I resonate with um, you know th- just kind of thinking about being younger and um, you know being in our in our twenties. I actually feel really grateful for it um, and just like the changing terrain of everything um, that has happened because of the pandemic. I feel like, um, you know, we've been um, underestimated for a while and Mm -hmm. um, that is going away. And, um, you know, we're all, we're starting our things and we're doing things out on our own. We're branching out. We're the great, we're part of the great resignation. So, you know, kudos to us for being a part of that because I don't, I got tired of being called inexperienced. That's for sure. Just because of my age. Um, But anyways, final thoughts, Anthony. The question I ask all my guests, please tell us what the F we can expect from you and Vino Vest next. All right. So next year, definitely expect a lot of new product innovation. We want to be able to do things that have never been seen in the wine investment uh, space. So we've got a few really big, exciting announcements in the first half of uh, Q2, I think. And then the other thing is expect wine investing to be a lot bigger part of institutional conversations. Um, you know, right now we've been mostly retail focused, but through the past few years, as we, as we built out our track record, um, we're moving upstream. And I think that's also really exciting to be able to bring, um, you know, an institutional grade uh, type of investment to a lot of other people who are searching for new sources of yield, right? All the, all the 60, portfolio, 60 40 portfolio managers you know, they're waking up, they're realizing they got to offer something new and not just another ETF to their clients. And we want to be right there as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, love it. Love that. Um, such a fan of you and the work that you are doing um, to just bring more access to more people. It's what Vintech is here to do. So thank you so much, Anthony, again, for joining us on this episode. Really appreciate it. Awesome, Nicole. I've had a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. Good, of course. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you loved this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button. You can find me on all your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time, talk to you soon.